having laid out the criteria, they found out there were two equally qualified people. One named Matthias and one named Justice. I want now to speak to you about humility. For every vacancy that exists, God has at least two equally qualified candidates. You are not that special. <laughs> you do understand, I hope, that the only irreplaceable component in the work of the kingdom is God. Without God, we can do nothing. Without us, God still has a shot. I know you feel that with your CRCDS credentials, you can almost walk on water. Well, go ahead and walk on it. That's okay with me. But if, like Peter, you take one step and sink, uh, you'd be in good company. We, we are not irreplaceable. I thought I was. I, I thought I was. We are excited to welcome Dr. Marvin McMichael as our clue speaker starting next Sunday morning here at the church and then continuing through the next several days at the college. So we hope that you will be able to come and hear him speak. Um, and you are welcome here at the Houghton Wesleyan Church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God. Unveil 
which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated upon their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign.
time I invite the ushers to come forward for the tithes and offerings. The moon and stars they wept, the morning sun was dead, the Savior of the world was fallen, his body on the cross, his blood poured out. The weight of every curse upon him. One final breath he gave, and on that blackest day, 
the Son of God was laid in darkness, a battle in the grave, the war on death was waged, the power of hell forever broken, the ground began to shake, the stone was rolled away, he's moments we're going to pray together and as we do so if you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers I invite you to join me sometimes kneeling is it's just the right posture in which to offer particular prayers so as we finish singing this song if you'd like to use the altar rail as your place of prayer come and join me Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to sing your praise and to honor and glorify you in this time of worship and in this moment of prayer. We come today in confidence knowing that you hear us when we pray and that you are at work doing more than we could dream or imagine. And so we offer our prayers today humbly but confidently because of who you are. Because of what you've invited us to come and to do. Lord, today we pray for those among us who are struggling with grief and pain and loss. And we think especially of 
Gary King and his family. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray for Bruce and Alton, for Dick and Isla, for Bev and Edna and for Linda and Micah, for Bill and Crystal, Emily, brothers who are on our hearts today. Father, we pray for the needs of the world beyond us. We think of the people in Ferguson, Missouri, and ask that you would continue to bring healing to this town and this situation and other places of the world where there are similar concerns. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We pray for the people in Africa who are facing this this, this terrible epidemic of the Ebola virus. We pray that you will bring solutions and healing and an end to it. We pray, Father, for the, for the ministry of faith comes by hearing. And we thank you for the things that this group is doing to get the gospel, the scriptures, into people's lives in their own language. And we pray that you will continue to bless their ministry in powerful ways. And, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution today. Something we know very little about. We pray especially for Yahya, this believer in Nepal who has been attacked simply for telling people about Jesus. We pray that you will heal her. We pray that you will restore her and we pray that you will give her confidence to continue to share the gospel. We pray that you will bring fruit from her life. And Father, may her life be an inspiration to us as we live our lives in, quite frankly, relative ease in comparison. Lord, as we begin a new academic year, we are asking for your grace to come upon the uh, the institutions, places of learning connected to us. We pray for your power and grace in the college, in the academy, in public schools, and in our homes. Wherever, Lord, there is learning going on. And we pray that you will help us to not only be filled with new knowledge and new understanding, but that we will grow deeper in our walk with you. That we will become more like Christ. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for loving us, for calling us to yourself, for inviting us to pray. We offer our prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading today comes from Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent You must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase your faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper 
Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Before you're seated, let me invite you to take a moment to share a word of greeting and welcome with others who are here in worship today. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone. You guys stopped too soon. How many of you have ever been asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Some of you are saying, I haven't grown up yet, so I don't have to worry about that. We all did ask that question at some point in time, and... The typical answers are things like, when I grow up, I want to be an airline pilot, or I want to be an actress. I want to uh, run a business or own a business. I want to, uh, to be a famous sports star. I want, to, um, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer, a teacher. If you're lucky, I want to be a pastor. <laughs> Nobody says that. I didn't say that, but that's a whole other story. You know what's funny, though, when I think about it? I don't think I've ever heard anyone when asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, I want to be a servant. Nobody says that. Because we equate being a servant with being a failure. We don't equate being a servant with success. Our culture, our society, continually tells us successful people are the opposite of being servants. And what is most interesting to me is that same message is often proclaimed in the church. We do the same thing. We say to people all the time, we, you want to be a success, and we're talking about running a ministry, running a program, being in leadership position, doing things. And, and we look at people who are successful in the church are people who have positions of power and influence. And even in the church, we tend to equate being a servant with failure. but not Jesus. The disciples one day come to Jesus, actually they do this a number of occasions, but they come to Jesus and say, you know, he, they're saying, we want, we want to know what it means to be your follower. And in essence, Jesus says back to them, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you become a real disciple? And they want, you know, James and John say, Jesus, when you get to your kingdom all brought together, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus says the, the right answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up spiritually, is be a servant. I am convinced when I read the scriptures that one of the most clear identifying markers of a follower of Jesus is being a servant. And I've come to the place that... I'm not sure you can really be a follower of Jesus without being a servant. But we wrestle with that because every message that comes to us is exactly the opposite. And when we read this this little parable that Jesus tells, this little story about being a servant, one of the first things that comes to mind is, wow, that doesn't present a very good image of God. It's very, you know, taskmaster, tyrannical kind of... And Jesus is not trying to equate that. Nor is Jesus in any way condoning slavery. 
He is simply taking something that's an institution, that's a part of their culture, and saying, let me connect that to what I want to say, what I want you to think. Because if we think being a servant is failure in our culture, it was a thousand times more in theirs. Because their culture had servants all over the place. Slaves. And Jesus, but Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about condoning this horrific institution. And I'm not saying God is this unpleasable taskmaster. I'm just saying, if you want to be my disciple, the identifying characteristic is being a servant. I don't think he's also, I think he's saying we want to serve God, but he's saying we serve God by serving each other. And that is a principle of of scripture, a principle of the kingdom, that we serve God by serving one another. In John's first letter, he says, don't tell me you love God if you hate your brother and sister. In fact, the sign of loving God is loving your brother and sister. And the sign of being a servant of God is being a servant to each other. And that makes sense because what's the most difficult part of our lives? Relationships. Right? I mean, most every problem, most every pain that we feel, most every struggle that we have, you're thinking about your own heart right now, your own emotions. And you think about what am I feeling? Where do I hurt? Where's the pain in it, deep within me? I would be surprised if it doesn't have something to do with relationships. Something someone said, something someone did, a way in which someone hurt you, disappointed you, challenged you. And that pain is about relationships. And Jesus says, if you're going to serve me, you've got to deal with those relationships. And you deal with those relationships through service, by being a servant to one another. And what does that look like? In the beginning part of this chapter, he, he quickly runs over a few things. And one of them, he says, is if, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. I think there is a sense in which our faith as being a servant and connecting that is in loving confrontation. Now, a little bit of me hesitates to say that because confrontation cannot always be pleasant and loving. I once had someone say to me, I have the gift of confrontation. And I said to them, yeah, I I think you do, but I don't think that's from the Spirit. (laughs) they, They weren't confronting people because they loved. They were confronting people because they wanted, they were angry and they were, they wanted to get back at them and and they wanted to, they wanted to control people and tell people what to do. There was nothing of love or serving in what they did or said at all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a servant who sees something in the master, in another person that has authority over them, that controls their life. Seeing something in their life that is leading them down a path of destruction and having the guts to stick out their neck in humility and prayer and love and say, I care about you too much not to at least bring this up. And it's a risk because you can get your head chopped off when you stick out your neck like that. But that's what servants do. But it's in that spirit of serving. He also says that if your brother or sister sins against you and they come and say, forgive me, you forgive them, period. What do we do most of the time? When someone says, please forgive me, the first time we say, okay. The second time, we hesitate a couple seconds and then say, okay. The third time, we step back and say, okay, I'm going to have to process this a little bit. They say to Jesus, how many times? And Jesus says, seven More than seven, 70 times seven, he tells Peter. In other words, just don't count. Just keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. And what's their response? Lord, give us faith. I don't think we can do this. Jesus says, you can do it. In my power, in you, you can do it. If you're willing to approach forgiveness like a servant, through the grace of Christ, you can do it. We serve one another by forgiving each other. And we don't put, we don't put uh, stipulations on that forgiveness. We don't make people prove themselves. We don't make people come to us and say, well, you know, give me a month to observe you and then I'll see. 
We simply forgive. Now, sometimes it takes time to work out all the details of the forgiveness and the pain and and all of that. But when someone says, please forgive me, even if it's for the 197th time, we say, you're forgiven. And we do that because that's what Jesus does for us. And the prodigal son comes running home to his father and he says, you know, I've sinned. The father says, whoa, 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 stop. It's not about you measuring up to some standard. It's not about me testing you. This is about me loving you. Come on in, let's throw a party. I think one of the most fascinating things Jesus says here is the beginning of the chapter about how we serve. And that is, we serve people who are vulnerable. You know, he, he begins by this, this section by saying, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than for them to cat, cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Wow. And he's saying, people are going to do things wrong. That's life. That's the way it is. We're all a part of that. But if you're the person that caused them to do what was wrong, God help you. I think one of the most um, neglected sentences in every wedding ceremony, and I talked to couples about this, there is a sentence in every wedding, generally every wedding ceremony, that I think people just listen and don't pay any attention to. After the couple says their vows to each other and they exchange rings, most of the time the the person officiating will say, now that so-and-so, husband and wife, have declared their consent with vows and have exchanged rings with each other. I now declare to you that they're husband and wife in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the person says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. And one of these days, I'm going to stop the wedding right there and just say, all right, let me just say something here. I haven't done that to any couples yet, but I'm tempted to. To stop and to say, Do you all understand what that means? These are the words of Jesus. These are not words that I made up. These are the words of Jesus. Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. What he's really saying is, if you do anything to cause difficulties in this marriage, God help you. If you do anything to separate this couple, to cause cause their, their relationship to disintegrate in any way, you're going to be held responsible before God. And there are, there are some, some parents and some siblings and some aunts and uncles and some friends who need to hear that. And you put that into the context of our lives. There are people in our lives who are vulnerable. Vulnerable to sin, vulnerable to life. What are we doing that might be causing them, leading them down a path of destruction spiritually? So you've got, you, you got to be careful about that. You have to think about, as a servant, you think about people who have needs. You think about people who are most vulnerable. In the church, it's probably our children and our youth. And maybe what we need to do in order to be servants is to say, I'm going to give up my right to do whatever I want to do to to uh, spend my time however I want to spend it and instead volunteer to help out with our children on Wednesday night or our youth group on Sunday night or to give up going to Sunday school or give a make, have, go to a different service so I can teach in Sunday school or help in Sunday school or work in children's church or the nursery or help out with a youth event or maybe it's helping out someone around us who has a physical need. We give up. We sacrifice. That's what being a servant is about. We want to help people as long as it doesn't cost us too much. Servants always pay a price. You notice in the, in the little story, he says, when the guy's out working all day, the servant's out working all day, and, and he or she comes in tired, hungry, what happens? Does the master say, you know what? You have been laboring all day. Sit down. Let me get some food for you. No. Despite the fact you've been working all day, you come in and the master says, feed me, take care of me. And then you can rest and eat. Because that's what servants do. We sacrifice. 
Earlier this summer, there was an article in Christianity Today magazine about by a woman who I would guess probably late 20s, early 30s, something along those lines. She's talking about growing up in a home, uh, a Christian home, and they didn't have any alcohol in the home. But uh, most of her friends drank, and, and uh, as they got older, her siblings did. And so when she turned 21, she began to drink. And she wasn't an alcoholic, or it wasn't a problem for her, but she just, you know, she'd hang out with her friends at a bar, or, you know, they'd come over and have meals, have wine together. And when she got married, she and her husband just made it a regular practice, so what they did. And after having been married a few years, I think they had a child, they decided, they felt a calling from God to move into an apartment complex in the inner city. And they moved to this place, got settled, and it was a pretty rough place. And she said it was not unusual for her to walk out of their apartment and go down the steps and step over a man who was passed out drunk at 11 o'clock in the morning. She would hear the neighbors fighting in an alcohol-induced state. Police would come because a husband had been drinking and beat his wife and children. Someone almost burned down the apartment building because they were in a drunken stupor and left a pan on the stove. And said one day she was walking to the liquor store to buy some wine or whatever, and one of her neighbors that she had seen in these other scenarios was coming out carrying a whole bunch of stuff. And he said, it was though God said to her, look, are you willing to give up the right to drink in order to be a witness and to help these people who can't handle it? And from that day, she and her husband made, this, made the decision they weren't going to do it anymore. It's not necessarily a rule that everyone has to follow. But you have to admire her willingness to sacrifice something that for her was freedom. It was a right. But she gave it up so that, she, uh, because it affected other people. And that's what servants do. And we do it every day in a variety of ways. Maybe it's going up to the nursing home and spending an hour visiting folks who maybe tomorrow won't even remember you were there. Maybe it's finding uh, someone in the, in the area who has need of painting their house or weeding their garden. And you just go and you do it. Maybe it's working in one of the children's ministries, youth ministry. Maybe it's something takes place in your dorm or in your apartment complex. Somebody who you know needs a friend. And you sacrifice your time and your energy to be that friend. More often than not, being a servant is about the everyday kinds of decisions. Small things, little things, unseen things. Fred Craddock says that most of us like to think of offering our lives to God in service as if we take a $1,000 bill and we lay it down on the table and we say, there's my life. And we are expecting God to take that $1,000 and our lives just sort of explode in glory. And some huge, big event that envelops us and people say, wow, look at their sacrifice. He said, most of the time, God says to us, take that $1,000 bill, go to the bank, and cash it in for quarters. And spend the rest of your life giving out 25 cents of service here, and 50 cents of service here, and 75 cents of service here, and maybe every so often a dollar. Just giving away, giving of yourself, serving whether people see it, recognize it, or not. That's what servants do. It's not about how much can people, how much will people recognize everything I've done. It's about there's a person in need, I can serve them. And we can't serve everyone, but God will bring into our lives, he has brought into our lives. In fact, I can guarantee he probably has someone in your mind, even right now, that God is prompting you about serving. And you're hesitant because, quite frankly, it's going to be costly to serve that.
that person. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a sacrifice. You're going to have to give up. But that's what servants do. It's, it's how we live. It's a, it's a lifestyle that we embrace. And we do it because it's what Jesus does. I mean, in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 42 and moving on through pretty much the rest of the book, he describes the, the anointed one. He describes the, the Messiah who is to come, the Son of God. He describes him. And what language does he use? Over and over and over again, he says, he will be the suffering servant. That's who he is. And in Philippians, Paul writes to the church and says, have the same mind in you. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's fascinating to me is that when you get to the book of Hebrews, the writer says about Jesus, looking ahead to the joy, he endured the cross. Jesus doesn't become a servant begrudgingly. He isn't a servant because God's got his arm pinned behind his back and he can't do anything else. When Jesus is born into this world to be a servant, the angels rejoice. The heavens sing songs of celebration. And Jesus says, I have come to bring life and joy. And the same one who comes to bring life and joy through service says, we will experience that life and joy through our service. If we serve begrudgingly, if we serve because we have to, if we serve because we feel God's got us in a bind and we can't do anything else, I'm not sure it's really serving. But if we embrace it, if we serve because it is the way of Christ, because it's the way to experience the fullness of God in our lives, because it brings joy to God, It will bring joy to us. And that brings us to this table. This is the table that calls us to see the sacrifice of the servant. His death, his resurrection, and his promise to return. And it calls us to be Christ-like servants. It calls us to a life of serving that brings joy and peace and grace through Christ, the one who served. So this morning as we prepare to come and to eat and to drink, we come in gratitude because Christ has served and because of his service we have life. And we come offering ourselves again as servants. giving glory to God, opening our hearts to give ourselves away that we might be filled to the fullness of Christ himself. Father, we thank you for this call to serve. It's a hard one for us. And yet we know that the way of service is the way of life. So we ask, Father, that you will help us to embrace this life of service in Christ. Father, as we prepare to to receive the bread and the cup, we pray that you would pour out your blessing on these elements. That they would be to us joy and grace and life and peace and mercy. Thank you for the gift of your son who comes to serve. Fill us 
with that same grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting in the upper room with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. For this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning, we are receiving communion by the mode of intinction. just means to dip in. As you are released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then you can return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we do have a tray of bread and cups. We'll be happy to serve you in your seat. We also have gluten-free wafers if that's a need you have, and I can serve you with those. Just let me know as you come to the front. I, I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. This may not be your theological or denominational tradition. But if you come today with your heart open to God, with a desire to be embraced by the grace of Christ and to let him make you his servant, then come. And receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.
Behold, the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of His sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. So we share. A, a group of, of people who are in positions of leadership but desire passionately to be servants in that, and certainly more than just this group. But this morning, we want to take a moment before we go and to pray for the leaders of the, our Koinonia ministry. And so if you're a part of that ministry of leadership, I want you to come and stand out here in front, and uh, we want to gather around you and pray for you. Come on down. And I know one of their prayers, their desires, is to be a servant and to let God use them in this ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given to everyone standing before us. We thank you for their hearts, the desire to be servants. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would rest upon each person as they plan and prepare and as they lead, may every moment be done as your servants serving each other, serving this community in worship. Lord, we pray your blessing upon the Koinonia ministry. 
We ask that it will continue to be a ministry that, that you use to speak deeply into our hearts and souls. And that this ministry will be yours. We give it to you. Do with it whatever you want. Be glorified in every moment. Thank you for each person standing here. Thank you for the desire of their hearts and for the passion they have to worship you. Let their desires and their passions be ours. As we support them, love them, serve them as they serve us. May your blessing be so evident in their lives every moment. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Receive the benediction. Go forth to serve both God and your neighbor in all that you do. That they may see in you the joy, the grace, the mercy, and the love of Christ. Amen.